0: So turn with me, if you would, to Romans 6. Uh, We continue to work our way through this series uh, through the book of Romans. And again, as I mentioned, we're in this very beautiful, very dense, very rich, very complicated and confusing passage of Scripture. In the 22 years that I've been preaching... Uh, through, I don't know, 25 books of the Bible, probably uh, in total, there's one theme that has caused me more grief when I've preached through it than any other theme. And it just so happens that this one theme resurfaces just about every week, or in fact, every week. And it might surprise you what it is. It's not actually sin, although certainly that comes up all the time. It's not hell it's, it's not uh, eternal damnation. It's not what the Bible says about sexual purity or the sacredness of human life. The subject that has consistently gotten me into the most hot water over the years is grace, the grace of God. We've already seen in our study through Romans that written on the heart of man is the law of God, and as law-inscribed creatures, we, are, we then naturally have a tendency to judge, We judge our friends, we judge our neighbors, we judge our leaders, we judge our kids, we judge ourselves constantly. We are constantly judging. If you don't think you're prone to judge, uh, consider for a second the, the number of times you have said to yourself, maybe not out loud, but said to yourself, why would they do that? Ever said that? Why would they do that? Why would they parent that way? Why would they live that way? Why would they make those decisions? We have this, because we are, again, law-inscribed people, we are judges by nature. I was praying with a group of men recently, and one of them, when he was praying, uh, said, God, thank you that you don't judge me the way that I judge other people. And I found that to be so powerful for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it was a reminder that, that God judges rightly, perfectly, not spitefully or sinfully or hypocritically the way that we so often judge but it was also a humble confession that we are so prone again to judge others and as I said ourselves as well because we are judges we demand justice we expect we we demand that people should get what they deserve So good people should get good things and bad people should get bad things. And we can't tolerate it when bad people actually get good things or when good people get bad things or when those we consider to be failures are rewarded or the unrighteous are received by God. But the Bible tells us that it's not the quote righteous that God accepts, but the broken, the crushed, the repentant. The beaten down, not the successful, but the failures who have run to Jesus for rescue. And there's something that's very unnerving about that equation. That's what grace is. It's unsettling. It, it throws us off because it takes the control away from us. And it almost, in my experience, elicits a yeah, but response. And I've heard it a million times. Yeah, but there have to be limits. Limits. Yeah, but you've got to have tough love. Yeah, but grace can only go so far. As you've heard me say before, the late theologian Robert Capon once said, if you want to make people mad, preach law, that is tell them what to do. If you want to make them really mad, preach grace. Remind them that there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation. It's completely beyond their control. Inform them that everything they have has been given to them, despite the fact that they don't deserve any of it. And remind them there's no way that they could ever pay God back for his gift of salvation. That really ticks people off, frankly. But that's the story of the Bible. The Bible's a story of grace. Romans is a book about God's grace. 21 times in this book, Paul will highlight, mention, accentuate the beautiful, extravagant grace of God. Uh, five times, or six times rather, in chapter five alone. The last part of which uh, Pastor Chris covered so well last week. Romans 5, 20 says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The more we fail, Paul says, the more God swoops in and restores us. The more we sin against Him, He doesn't turn His back on us, He actually then pursues us even more intensely by his love. The more sin abounds, Paul says, in other words, the worse we get, God's grace abounds all the more. Now, Paul knows, of course, that such an assertion will prompt the question, well, if me sinning gives God more opportunity to show his grace, then shouldn't I then sin more to give God even more opportunities? And Paul will spend the next. Section answering that question, but really the questions he's answering are this How does a person who gets grace live? How does a person who grasps grace fight against sin? What sort of disposition, what sort of uh, a life does a person who has been impacted by grace uh, live? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Romans 6. We're going to cover verses uh, 1 through 14, but let me start by reading just verses 1 and 2. He reads the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, some translations, God forbid, may it never be. How can we who die to sin still live in it? So for much of Romans, you know, Paul's sort of, anticipating the objections of an interlocutor who's going to say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or how about this? And so Paul then anticipates this, and he responds often to those anticipated questions with questions. He's taking the approach that that Jesus so often uh, modeled. It's pretty fascinating, actually, when you read the Gospels, that Jesus was asked over 180 questions. You know how many questions he actually answered directly? Three Three times out of 180. What did he do? Well, he either didn't answer sometimes, or most of the time, he just responded with questions in turn. And I wonder, it's not at all the point of this passage, but it did occur to me, I wonder how much more effective we might be in in our evangelism. You know, if if we didn't always feel like we had to have a ready answer, but we responded with questions, probing questions in, in, in our parenting in our marriages in our relationship, if we didn't always feel like we had to have a quick quick answer, but we responded with questions to get further into the issue. Now we don't want to be jerks about it. You know, there are times to respond to questions with answers. Someone says you meet somebody new, they say, "Hey, what's your name?" You say, well, "What's your name?" I mean, you know, you you don't want to be want to be jerks about it. But but I think there is some wisdom in this, obviously. Jesus employed this particular approach. So, Paul, being well trained in rhetoric and having spent time with the risen Lord himself, he embraces this model. And as to the question, should we sin that grace may abound more? Paul asks rhetorically, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, let me give you, let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. The fact that we've died to sin doesn't mean that we're now sinless, that we're uh, without sin. We know that's not the case. Uh, nor does it mean that we can achieve perfection in this life. The very next chapter, Romans 7, Paul will say, why is it that all the things I really don't want to do, I keep doing? And the things that I know that I should do, I don't do. So it doesn't mean that we can attain perfection. Nor does it mean that we will, we're going to be free from the temptation to sin, of course, We are regularly, persistently tempted to sin. The phrase dead to sin is figurative language. Obviously, the recipients of this letter are not completely dead. Otherwise, it would have been pointless to write this letter. To say that they and all those in Christ have died to sin is to say that we have been freed from sin's control, sin's tyranny, sin's domination over us. Paul will explain as we go along in this chapter in verse 6 that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We've been set free from its power over us. Now, I'm going to explain how that actually works out in daily life in a minute. In his terrific commentary, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes, The idea then is of decisive separation from the rule or realm of sin... Sin being personified throughout this chapter as a power that rules over the person outside of Christ. Now notice this, and this is very, very important. What Paul says is an indicative, not an imperative. In other words, he's describing something that has already happened, that's already been done. He's not commanding us to do something. He's not saying, uh, now start dying to sin. No, he says, we have died to sin. To suggest that this is something we're supposed to do is, uh, as Baptist theologian Thomas Schreiner says, to monstrously distort this passage. This is Paul describing the state of being for the believer. He or she has died to sin, and it is a state of being with ongoing benefits. Namely, those in Christ are now free from the power or the rule of sin. Here's our first point. Those who have been forgiven of their sin because of Christ also have power over their sin in Christ. So those who have been forgiven because of Christ now have power over their sin in Christ. One concern, complaint, lament that I hear as a, you know, as a pastor all the time from people is I just cannot resist this particular temptation. I don't have the ability to resist this particular temptation. Whatever it is. The temptation to, to lust. To say something uh, hurtful. To lash out in anger. To harbor bitterness. To hold on to jealousy. To entertain hatred in our hearts. They say, I just can't. I just can't resist the temptation to sin. But the Bible says that you can, at any given moment, resist that temptation. You've been freed from Sin's power over you. Now, again, it doesn't mean that the Christian life will be easy. I mean, in in, in a real sense, things don't really get hard until we become a Christian. That's when the real spiritual battle begins. That's when the struggle with sin begins. It won't be easy, but even though it won't be easy, each individual battle with sin can be overcome because of Christ, his death for sin and his indwelling presence. It is the power of Christ, Paul says, that enables us to succeed moment by moment against the temptation of sin. And that power is mediated at least partly, when we look at, we keep it chapter five and chapter six together, it is mediated at least partly as the Holy Spirit reminds us that we've already been forgiven of every sin. That on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty and absorbed the shame for all of our sin. For everyone, so they no longer condemn us we are truly free. Now look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, with, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now let me just say at the outset. Theologians, scholars, brilliant people have debated this section for, for generations. Many, many people. What does it mean to say we have been baptized into Christ Jesus and consequently baptized into Christ's death? Well, most of us Baptists view this verse as referring symbolically to the moment of our, our water baptism. And at the risk of my own job security, uh, let me say, it could be, it could be in reference to that. Okay, so there's me hedging my bets. It could be in reference to that. But I'm not really sure. In fact, I don't think so. Because elsewhere, Paul makes it clear that to be baptized into Christ Jesus means to be baptized into union with Christ It means to be united with Christ. And that happens at the moment of our conversion when we repent and believe in Christ, not when we're baptized into water. Paul says in Galatians 3 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To put on Christ, in in, in Pauline language, is a reference to having been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, clothed with a new nature. In Galatians, Paul seems to say that we are baptized into Christ when we are united to Christ by faith. So, when Paul talks in verse 3 about those who are baptized into Christ, I don't think he's talking about at the moment of our water baptism. Uh, I think he's talking about being plunged into Christ, into the realm of Christ, so to speak, when we were converted. And I like the way New Testament scholar Frank Thielman puts it. He says this, the most natural way to take Paul's phrase is less a reference to the act of baptism than a metaphorical reference to the placement of the believer at his or her conversion into the sphere of Christ's power. When we are converted, that is to say, when we repent and believe in Christ, we are transferred into a new spiritual realm. We are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. So every human being, you, know, you think about, there are only really two types of people. It's not black and white, black or white, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, you know, northern, southern, whatever. It's, it's those who are in Christ, those who are in Adam. Every human being is born in Adam in that spiritual realm, in Adam. Uh, but God, by his grace, transfers many into Christ as he brings them to repentance and faith. Those who are Adam are, you think, if in that sphere, they are condemned by God, currently condemned by God. They are under God's wrath. They are enslaved to sin. They are destined for hell. But those who are in Christ are accepted by God, loved, adopted, and forgiven by God, free from the enslavement to sin, and destined for eternal glory. Because, Paul says, we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. Now, let's continue. And I think this will make a little more sense as we continue on. Verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, there's a lot there. Even though we will not experience bodily resurrection until Jesus comes again. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Because we have been united with Christ, we have already been resurrected with Him. Paul says we actually experience right now the benefits of the resurrected life. Well, what are those benefits? Well, Paul's already alluded to some of them. We are now free from the enslavement to sin. So that sin is no longer a master. We now walk, verse 4, in newness of life. Another benefit, we are free from the condemnation of sin. Verse 10 says that, with Christ, that Christ died with respect to sin once for all. Christ was sinless. He was perfectly obedient. His death was an unrepeatable event that atoned for the sins of others. He died in our place so that by believing on him, we would be free from the condemnation of sin and receive eternal life. And now we live with Christ-indwelled power. Another benefit is we are given a new identity. Resurrection life is nothing short of an entirely new identity. Now, this may not mean much to some of you. You know, you've been given a new identity. But if you are aware of all the ways you've failed, all the ways that I've failed, and we're aware of the mess that we've made of our lives, morally speaking... Then it is an incredible blessing to realize that we will receive a, we receive a new identity in Christ. So if you if this is your identity, or if someone you maybe all the people you know perceive you as this you are you are a you know you're a dropout or a divorcee or a failure or a pornographer or an addict or whatever fill in the blank and you then realize you're told you're actually given a new identity in Christ, that actually means everything to you. A, a new identity is an aspect of the resurrected life. So you may say, well, and don't you love it when, when someone says to you, they, they say something very rude and mean-spirited and hurtful and sarcastic, and you say, oh, that, like, that really hurt. They say, well, that's just who I am. I, I'm just a rudely sarcastic person. Well, not really. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are if you're in Christ. You've got a new identity. You are a child of God. You are a beloved son or daughter. You are a prized possession of the universe's creator, a holy one. You are a servant of the king of kings and a slave to righteousness. These are the benefits of the resurrected life, our union with Christ. Verse six says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, old self being you know, the old man, our old, unregenerate self, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So, in a sense, in a sense, we were co crucified with Jesus. Now, I know that sounds strange, it sounds almost unbelievable, but I think it's because we have a hard time grasping the real significance of our union with Christ. Clearly, we weren't there when Jesus died, we didn't hang on a cross. But because we are in Christ, we also die when Christ died. Our old self was crucified, and at the moment of our baptism, which, again, a general sort of catch-all phrase for our conversion, the death of the old self becomes effective in our lives. Here's what I mean. This is our second point. Our participation through faith in Christ's death means that our old self has been crucified and a new nature conferred. When when Christ acts, when God acts upon us by his grace and softens our hard hearts and enables us to tr- trust, repent, and believe, at that moment, the old self is put off and the new self is put on. Now, I grew up, and, and maybe you did too, hearing a lot of fundamentalist preachers telling that you know, we have two natures, These two natures and they're like, you know, kind of rabid dogs, warring dogs. And and whichever dog we feed is the dog that's going to be victorious, you know. So you're always, you got these two natures. But that's actually not really correct. Longtime author and theologian J.I. Packer says, A widespread but misleading line of teaching tells us that Christians have two natures. An old one and a new one. But those in Christ, as we just read, the old nature has been crucified. The old nature is dead. What happens to conversion through an event called regeneration or the new birth is a person becomes a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 new things have come. It's not that the believer in Christ receives something new, he actually becomes something new. The new nature is not added to the old nature but actually replaces it. But then, of course, the question is, why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep on giving into temptation? Well, that's because even though the old nature is dead, we still live in this corrupt, unglorified flesh. So positionally, we are holy before God, and yet practically, we're still very much imperfect, living in an imperfect world, We are, in the words of Martin Luther, simultaneously justified and sinful. The habits and patterns and thoughts of the old man, which were once so much a part of our lives, part of who we were and how we lived, are still very familiar to us. They're so so easy for us to settle into those. The old man has left his residue, though he's been crucified, and we, we will not be completely free from that residue until... Christ comes again and we're given new glorified bodies. But what we need to hear over and over again is that the struggle is not a hopeless struggle. With our old nature, we could not resist sin. With our new nature, we can put off sinful practices. With our old nature, sin reigned over us. It was our master. With our new nature... We have the power of Christ. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We have died to sin. That is our new identity. We are alive to God in Christ. But we so easily forget it, don't we? That's why Paul says in verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't forget who you truly are in Christ. Don't forget your true identity in Christ. Sometimes what we need to be reminded of more than anything else is actually who we truly are in Christ. In the late 1990s, I was a sports anchor on television. I was on TV every 5.30, and, you know, 10.30, whatever, every night. And, and the station director came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in, in hosting a weekly 30-minute uh, sports show every Friday night and uh, it's called Sports First with John Sloan. I thought, well, but but my name already in there, what choice do I have? Um, But he said, would you be interested in hosting this show? I said, sure, I'd I'd be glad to. And so for a while, I had this show on Friday nights late. And um, I didn't get to choose my co-host. My co-host was a guy by the name of Mark Miller, who was a wonderful human being, but um, he didn't have, he had a very bland personality and had a face that was kind of better for radio, as the joke goes, and so. Um, but he was my host, and and but he could tell some amazing stories. He played in the NFL in the late seventies, and um, and he had a lot of stories from those days. He played for the Cleveland Browns, and he told this one story I'll never forget. He was playing; it was nineteen seventy seven. He's playing backup quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, and they had a first year starter in nineteen seventy seven by the name of Brian Sipe. Some of you may remember if you follow football back then. Um, And and Brian Seip was a very accurate, short-range passer, but he couldn't hold on to the ball. He just was constantly fumbling. And they tried everything. The coaches tried everything there in 1977 to get him to stop fumbling, hold the ball like this, transfer the ball like this, secure the ball like this, but he just kept fumbling. Well, the coach in 1977 was, was fired. And uh, they brought in a new coach, first year coach. His name was Sam Retigliano. He was from Brooklyn, New York. And he didn't try any of those tactics. He didn't say, hold the ball like this, transfer. He just said to Brian Seip, he said, look, you're not a fumbler. That's not who you are. And incredibly, Brian Seip stopped fumbling the ball. I mean, I'm not saying he never fumbled again, but that no longer, he just he, he stopped that terrible practice. He just needed to be told, that's not who you are. One of the greatest problems that we face as Christians is what some have called spiritual amnesia. We have forgotten who we are in Christ. We say, I can't resist that sin. I can never be successful against that sin. I can't stop sinning in that way. We need to be told, yeah, you can. That's not who you are in Christ. We forget that we're new creatures. We forget that we've been, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We forget that we've been forgiven all of our sins and actually really been set free. London pastor uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrates this very powerfully in talking about the, the heinous evils of slavery in North America in the 18th and 19th century. He said that after the Civil War, when slavery was abolished and Slaves, both young and old, were given their freedom. Some had endured so many years of suffering and so many years of inhumane treatment that they found it nearly impossible to actually grasp experientially that they were free and to actually live in light of their new status as freed men and women. Lloyd-Jones writes, they heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands of times in their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and to tremble and wonder whether they were going to be sold. He goes on to say, you can be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here in Romans 6 through his word that if we are in Christ... We are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. And then picking up with Romans 6, verse 11, he says, realize it. Reckon it. Believe what God has said about who you truly are. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have died to sin. You are united with Christ. You are united with his resurrection. You are alive to God in Christ. You are free from the reign of the sin. You have really and truly been set free. Now, will you struggle with sin? Yes. Will I struggle with sin and temptation? Yes. But we are no longer under its tyranny. It is no longer our master or our Lord. Now, look at verses 12 through 14. So, in light of that, he says, let not sin therefore... Reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. The phrase "mortal bodies" just refers to our whole selves, every single aspect of our being. Instead, he says, present your members, again, the faculties of our cell, whole selves, to God, in every way, to use your instruments, those instruments as weapons of righteousness. Notice the, the, the war imagery. We've, we see, we've seen words like reign, weapons, obey, dominion. Now think about this in a very practical level, how we use our members to sin. How do we use our hands and our fingers to sin? Well, perhaps by the things we type, by the things we text, by the things we search, by the way that we strike out at someone. You know, in my experience, most, uh, most infidelity most marital infidelity often starts with a single comment or a single text. Think about how we use our hands and fingers, our eyes, the things we look at, the things we stare at, the things we watch, our feet and the way that we go places we know we ought not go, our minds and the things that we dwell upon or imagine, Paul, he's personifying sin as this powerful king who commands an army. And he pleads with his readers, and us of course, not to place their weapons, their instruments, their faculties at the disposal of the evil king. Do not give your minds, bodies, emotions, and wills to the service of this king. Now for the believer, Christ is our king. He is our Lord. We're not in the service of this personification of evil. We are not under the lordship of that cruel and evil tyrant. But we have to be continually aware of how that king, sin, tries to capture us into his service. And we have to actively resist the temptation to use our faculties to sin. After all, he says in verse 14, we're not under law, we're under grace. Which is to say we've been moved from the power of law and the condemnation of law into the power in the realm of grace. We've been transferred from the realm of law to the realm of grace. Now, let me wrap up by some very, very practical application. How do we put this all together? How do we actually apply this to our lives? How do we live in light of what we've just learned from Romans 6? How do I, I guess more specifically, when I'm faced with a temptation to sin, And it's a temptation that haunts me. What do I do? Well, I think there, in light of this passage and and all that we've learned so far in Romans, I think there are three, I'll call them convictions or realities that we have to embrace in light of this passage. First of all, we have to believe that we can make progress in our holiness. So we have to actually believe we can make progress in our holiness. Because we have Christ in us, we can grow. We can progress in holiness. This is why in verse 11, Paul will say again, you must consider yourself, remember, reckon it, realize that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember that you have died to sin. The goal is not to become something you're not, but to live in light of who you truly are in Christ. So we have to believe that we can make progress by the power of God in our holiness. Secondly, we have to remember, this is the flip side of that, we have to remember that we do have the residue of indwelling sin that remains in us. So, yes, we will fall to temptation. Yes, we will sin. We will have impure thoughts and motives. We will do stupid and wrong things. We shouldn't be shocked when we sin. The residue of indwelling sin will haunt us as long as we're alive. Perfection will not be possible in this life, but progress is possible. In fact, because of Christ within us, we will see progress. As I told my small group a couple of Sundays ago, sanctification, being conformed in the image of Christ, is a bit like being on a slow escalator up. God will sanctify us because we are alive in Christ, but it's slow. You ever been behind somebody when you're in a hurry and they're not walking up the escalator, they're just standing right in the middle? It can be, it can be frustrating. But our, and our progress is actually aided when we participate in the means of grace. That's how God actually sanctifies us. So first, we have to believe we can make progress in holiness. Second, we have to remember that we do have the residue of indwelling sin. And finally, and this may be the, the most important one, We have to fight our besetting sins with the promises of greater joy. We have to fight our besetting sins with the promises of greater joy. The Puritans talked about this a lot. Thomas Watson and others. More recently, John Piper, Kevin DeYoung. In other words, the way to resist those sins that plague us is to fight to believe. And again, this is warfare imagery. To fight to believe that what God has given us is actually truly better. It's not enough to tell ourselves, stop it. There's a great skit on YouTube with Bob Newhart, a comedian back in the 80s. It's, you can Google it later. Just stop it. But it doesn't work that way. You can't just say, stop it, and then stop. We need more than positive self-talk. In those moments of temptation, Satan is promising us, this will feel good. This will be satisfying. And sure, for a moment, sin does feel good. For a moment, it is satisfying. But it leaves a bitter taste, like, according to Proverbs, like a mouthful of rocks. And so we have to fight to believe the better promises, that what God provides is richer, more satisfying, and it leaves no bitter aftertaste, only a foretaste of what is to come. Here's our final point. For the Christian... The fight is to believe the promises of God that everything ours in Christ is better than what Satan and the world offer. When we're confronted with the temptation to lust, to be greedy, to be jealous, to send that vengeful text, to demand respect, to lash out in anger, to live in fear... We have to fight to believe through prayer and quiet and the scriptures and the fellowship of the saints. We have to fight to believe that what God has promised us instead is actually far better than anything the world or the devil can offer. I mentioned Timothy Keller a few weeks ago and uh, let me just use an illustration about him since he died so recently. But I, I remember hearing on a podcast toward the end of his life, just said, I don't know, a few months to live. He didn't know exactly, but I remember him being interviewed. And he said, you know, my fight really is not with cancer. Now that sounds kind of, I don't know, you know, spiritual or pious, whatever. He said, my fight's not really with my cancer. My fight is to believe in what God has said about the resurrection. He said, my, my fight's not really with cancer. Cancer's going to overtake me eventually. But the fight that I struggle with is, do I really believe the power and the beauty and the completeness of the resurrection? And that I too, like Christ, will be resurrected one day. So that's the fight. So, you know, we, we sin in so many ways and we're tempted in so many ways. Just telling ourselves to be strong, you know, to try harder, that's just not going to cut it. Well, we have to believe with all the means that God has availed to us, we have to actually fight to believe that what God promises is better. Because it actually is. Everything God has given us in Christ is better than what we experience by way of giving in to all of those temptations. If you're here this morning, and you are just under a mountain of pressure and temptation my prayer for you is that you will actually believe by the power of God's Spirit in the promises of God. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, you're thinking, "Yeah, I, I just can't, I have no success, no victory over sin. Well, if you're still dead in sin, unregenerate, if your old man still reigns within you and he's not been crucified, you'll never actually have victory. And worse than that, you now are still in Adam, estranged from God, under the wrath of God. But it doesn't, have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. When you repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be made new, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, given a brand new identity, and then all of those promises in the scriptures, they now fall to you, as we just sang about. All those covenant promises, they now belong to you. They fall to you. They found their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, but we will experience and reap the benefit of his faithful and obedient life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his mediatorial work for us even now. Let's pray.